Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to another episode of The Shrink and the Pundit here on The Daily Evolver. Featuring me, Jeff Salzman, The Pundit, and Dr. Keith, how you doing today? Dr. Keith's our resident shrink. I'm the resident integral shrink. Yes. Great. It's great to see you, Jeff. Yeah, likewise. So uh, Dr. Keith and I have been having this conversation for several years, uh, just about all kinds of integral stuff. Uh, A week or so ago, you sent me an email suggesting that we talk about the book, This View of Life by David Sloan Wilson. And uh, the subhead is Completing the Darwinian Revolution. And I was thrilled that you suggested that because I read this book back in June (laughs) when I was on an airplane. And, you know, I'm always interested in what the mainstream scientific movement is on the topic of evolution. And this guy, David Sloan Wilson, is you know, mainstream as he can be. He's the Distinguished Professor of Biological Sciences and Anthropology at Binghamton University. He's written with uh, Wilson. He's the co-founder of the Evolution Institute. And it's interesting to hear what he has to say and how he's moving the ball and how excited I was and how ultimately it was a letdown in a way, but it still moves the ball. So why don't we just start there with what got you going on it? Well, and I'm interested in what was the letdown for you. Uh, Mm -hmm. I had a similar experience. I started reading it and I, I went, okay, Here's another guy, uh, a mainstream guy that had the evolutionary awakening that evolution is happening on every level all the time. And so I was a little dismissive of it, but I went, you know, keep going, Keith, because part of my um, interest in this book was my reactions to it. And that reaction of being dismissive, I thought, this is a shadow of integral because we got this meta theoretical understanding it enables us to see blind spots in, in theories because it's a meta theory, it's not a theory. And you know, the human tendency, if you see a blind spot in a theory, is to dismiss it. And, you know, end of 20th century, people have been doing that all the time. And I go, boy, there I go doing that. And you know, that's a human competitive drive. You know, I certainly was trained in that. that was, <laughs> that's how critical thinking was taught. somebody's right, somebody's wrong. And, you know, in Integral, we've we've seen, well, you include and transcend critical thinking and polarity thinking. That's why Bina's stuff is so important right now. And I'm glad that she's being featured in Integral Life. You know, polarity thinking is is both both and thinking and relativistic thinking in terms of we're always just evaluating processes. I mean, even gravity is a process that we're evaluating that we're still going to learn and reconceptualize, I suspect, as, as time goes on. Yeah, yeah. So I, I went deeper, and there were things in it that I found fascinating. One fascinating thing, apparently social Darwinism was developed as an insult. <laughs> I didn't know that. That was hurled by um, uh, progressive green-type people at, you know, amber and orange people who were the let-them-eat-cake people who use Darwinism to justify not helping people. That was interesting. He also, for him, uh, for Wilson, it was a radical discovery that the, the small group of humans was, was a primary unit of social selection. And, um, and this is where the whole integral thing happens. You know, most people have a theory, and they would, then they start expanding their theory to fill up their version of the universe. 
they start warping the universe to fit their theory. In integral, we look at a theory, and if the theory is not fitting, we pull in another theory to enhance it. And it's a radically different way of thinking. And so he said, well, that means a small group is the primary unit of evolution. And I go, well, excuse me, uh, David, but not exactly. I mean, the evolution happens at the cellular level. It happens at the individual level. It happens at the family level, the cultural level, the group level, and at the mega level. And at the planetary level, arguably, our solar system is out competing the solar system next door because we have sentient life in our solar system. There's more complexity. And at some cosmic level, that's going to have an impact in the next couple thousand years, probably. And I remember asking Nassim Harimi, the, the, the physicist, about this. I said, well, what about time? How does that fit into your system? And he said, time is a function of size. I went, wow, Nassim, that's an interesting response. And, and so evolutionary time is like that. You know, some evolution, it's a function of, of size, and it's also a function of consciousness. The more consciousness you bring to evolution, the faster it goes. So right now, recombining evolution and with us, you know, uh, basically changing the, the ecosystem, evolution is going thousands of times faster than it has historically on this planet because yep. of the consciousness and, and, and the scale. Right? Yep. And so, yes, the, the small group is a primary unit, but, you know, there's lots of primary units. And also, if you, if you think in terms of holarchies, in terms of a holarchy, the primary unit are, is our fields. And then there's cosmic strings and then all the way up. And what's important about that is if you eliminate any level, then all the other levels above it disappear. Yeah. And, and this is basically one of the big arguments now against 5G and 4G. There's, there's data that says it, it affects human uh, cells at the level of the mitochondria and human genetic uh, forms, uh, sperm count and sperm composition stuff. <laughs> and so... Eliminated human beings at the level of mitochondria, all the other stuff, small groups and everything else, all that's gone. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, you're thinking in those terms. That being said, uh, uh, Wilson in his excitement went, okay, so this is really great. This explains political stuff that I wasn't explaining before. You know, that, that now, we, now he sees, for instance, a Mole corporation as expanding without boundaries and you can see there's two forms of boundaries now pushing at corporations. One are the natural boundaries, you know, like you use up the fishes and you can't fish anymore. And the other one are boundaries of consciousness. You know, you have collectives coming, coming back to another boundary. And, and so in nature, if there's a force that's expanding, it'll keep expanding until something pushes back. And at that edge, that's a fractal boundary, more complexity will arise. And, you know, we're seeing that. And, it, and the other thing that I was noticing about my reaction is when he started talking about what we should do about everything, um, I counted them. There were about five or six musts in one paragraph. <laughs> and this is what gets all us integral people pissed off. That's green getting all self-righteous and must this and must that and so on. Yep. And, and, you know, I got to say, one of the great compliments that I want to give to you about the Daily Evolver is that Becky listens to it. <laughs> oh, that's Becky, cool. Becky only listens to podcasts where she really likes the people and, they're, and, and the perspectives are really fun for her. And she listens to your podcast. And she listened to you talking about Greta, how you, were, you just had to force yourself to pay attention to her. Yeah. But you had to say, yeah, she's filling a role here. Yeah. But also, you know, that, that group. We're talking Greta Thunberg. Yeah. Yeah, the young climate activist. Young, yeah, the young autistic climate yeah, activist. Yeah, right on. Yeah. 
Well, you know, she's like a lot of people, you know, Asperger people are on the spectrum, but they can still relate. Asperger people sometimes are fun to hang out with because it's just kind of a radical honesty without social referencing. Oh, it's that's it's 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 one of the things I pointed out in the podcast is if we want to look at the evolution of culture, let's look at the evolution of how we think about oddballs, how we think about people who were, you know, as when I was a kid, they were retarded. They were put in these special classes. They were isolated or they were just isolated socially. And it's heartbreaking to think about that. But you can see the move that we've had where it's it's inclusion. Mm-hmm. And it's diversity, but now it's moved beyond that. It's appreciation yeah. for what she calls it her superpower. Her autism is her superpower. And actually, we see that these people that we used to think were defective, and they're out of the ordinary, but they often have something that the rest of us don't. And, and isn't that something that we notice that now? Oh, man. And, and, and we don't have to deny it. Yeah. If you look back in history, Isaac Newton was clearly on the spectrum and, 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 clear, and went psychotic in later yeah. years. We find yeah. that with a lot of mathematicians. Okay, we don't have to, that's still fine. A lot, you know, the, 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 the Newtonian laws are still valid. He put out a lot of great stuff before he went psychotic. Hopefully Greta won't go that direction. Well, yeah, <laughs> no. Well, that, yeah, it's that, that, you know, one of the things that, um, this may be a little tangential, but... <laughs> You know, where I sort of draw the line is how you've stolen my childhood. How dare you? Yeah, right. You know, it's like have a childhood, for God's sakes. <laughs> and all us true believers, you know, stop preaching these visions of hell to our children. Yeah. You know, and give them a break. So that I that I sort of chafe that. But, you know, the rest of it, I'm you know, struggling to let it all in, in a way, you know, as much as I can. Right. And, you know, that's what we're called to do. And that's what I, you know, I thought that was a great summation of the book and some of the issues with it that we're talking about. Again, the book's called This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution by David Sloan Wilson. And um, what I appreciated about the book was that he's moving the ball in terms of how scientists, and he talks about this, he talks about how scientists now are expanding the idea of evolution beyond the individual uh, so that we're seeing group, we're seeing, you know, cultural evolution in general. Yeah. Multi-level and that where we're at, what that allows us is the, the idea of conscious evolution where we can participate in our own evolution. And that, I mean, that alone just breaks us out of a certain scientific straitjacket that, you know, science has been in. And then he also um, challenges the social sciences uh, and anthropology, particularly that he says has gotten into a cul-de-sac around, you know, just having antibodies to any kind of idea of cultural evolution because it's seen as social Darwinism. And in in a way it was, I mean, whether or not it was an insult, it was actually how people thought and with eugenics and all of the, 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 yeah, Malthus, the Gilded Age, all of it, you know, and that after World War II and, and we saw that rationality even, you know, forget all the tribal stuff. All tribes have a triumphalist kind of story going on. They're all good with cultural evolution. We're going to win. You know, God's going to come back. But after World War II, uh, the idea of progress was obscene. 
you know, and that still has a stigma in the social sciences that um, uh, he's going against that. And he's saying, let's move beyond that. And he's saying a lot of people in science are trying to do that. So that gives me encouragement. And also part of the thing that I admire about him is he stayed in the mainstream. I mean, I, I couldn't be an academic because I just don't have the personality. It can operate in situations where, you know, you have to get a, somebody else gets a grant because their stuff is more mainstream. You submit a paper. And, you know, for a good example of this is the people who study retroviruses. You know, when Crick and Watson discovered the genome, they said, well, the DNA then translates into the RNA, which creates the protein. And it only goes in one direction. Okay, so there are these researchers who said, wait a minute, there are cancers that are seen to be caused by viruses. That means that the virus, which is an RNA, has to be affecting the DNA. And one of these guys wrote a letter to um, Crick, and Crick wrote a completely patronizing, you know, you know, it's okay to be wrong. Um, I'm, you know, and then, and I'm sure, you know, it's, new ideas are important, but this one is wrong. I mean, completely a non-integral response. And sure enough, what these guys found is a couple of them, friends, which was beautiful, that that indeed viruses have a little enzyme that can go and, and change the, the DNA that then can change a cell. And that led to an understanding of AIDS and it led to the DNA recombining techniques mm-hmm. that we have today. And those guys were laughed out of conferences. Mm-hmm. So this guy's working, he's in that system and he's willing to work with that system and, uh, and to raise his evolutionary flag. And I really appreciate that. Um, also, he did talk a little bit about interiors. Now you're talking Wilson in, in this Wilson. book now. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Let me just point out uh, that one of the other things he talked about, and this may be in the category that you're just describing, is that, you know, sort of a Linnaean uh, view of, of evolution where experiences of one's parents can be passed down genetically. Yeah. And that there is actually a, a, an exterior component of, you know, experience. I can easily see it as karma, right. but to see it as part of the genetic is, um, uh, is interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated that people are seeing that. That's, uh, you rem- so remember when, when Darwin became popular, uh, there was a heresy to say that behavior could affect the genome. Yeah. Just heresy. And then they began to get studies out of Sweden, for instance. Um, it was kind of like the maniac and heresy in Catholicism. You know, like the devil can't create anything. You know, it was like, no, no, you can't. Well, as it turns out, you can. And on a social level, absolutely you can. And that, you know, and spiral dynamics was designed to say there's a social evolution that mirrors to a large extent the uh, biological evolution. Biological yeah. evolution. And so, you know, you can see it, it coming together. The, the place where I get irritated is we go, well, this other person then is wrong. Okay. I know. You know, and this, is, this wasn't in the book, but a good example of that is there's a really engaging mathematician named Steve Meyer who wrote a book about evolution. And he said there is, that you cannot explain the pre-Cambrian. The Cambrian period happened 500 million, started 500 million years ago. And right before it, there was a 12 to 7 million year gap. And 12 to 16 major forms of, of animal emerged. And he said mathematically, that's impossible using just natural selection. And so, therefore, now, here's what he did. Therefore, Darwin is wrong, and there must be something else going on. I know. 
And you go, okay, well, look, as integralists, we go, well, that's interesting because we believe in morphogenic fields, okay? We also consider involution to be a real thing. Describe, involution described as? Involution described as when the universe came into existence, there was a potential for, for many, many, many layers of complexity. That potential came into existence at that moment. And the universe has been growing into that potential through the evolutionary process ever since. But that potential had a force of its own. It had a pathway that we're going towards. Just like morphogenic fields, if you create enough of something, it has an energetic quality because every physical body has an energetic quality in the integral. And that energetic quality works sympathetically to support the evolutionary process. And so if you, if you accept that, and there's a lot of evidence for both of these things, particularly for morphogenic fields, then what meant is that the conditions got right, and this is, explains punctuated evolution, of course, that the, the conditions got right, and then all of a sudden these things happened sympathetically, and 12 to 16 new forms appeared very, very quickly. And if you look at, at morphogenic fields as a form of intelligence, like nature intelligence, the way that Michelle Small Wright talks about it in the Paralandra work, okay, that's intelligent design. Yeah. Okay. So now we have a both and. It's not like we have to throw out Darwinism because of that. No, of course. Natural selection happened. But obviously there is something else happening. Um, at least that's what the data shows us mathematically. Yeah. Well, it's one of the things that um, sort of got lifted me up and then sort of left me cold about this book was he started out talking about Teilhard de Chardin and his book. Yeah, exactly. And about teleology, the basic gravitational pull towards, you know, a God consciousness, basically. And that means that there's a loving intelligence. There's something that is seeing us and loving us. And, you know, there's a, there's a divine other. And Sloan, or, uh, Wilson, David Sloan Wilson has nothing, wants nothing to do with that. Yeah. And so, you know, he talks about, and again, I think he's moving the ball tremendously and I don't blame him. I don't even know if he believes it, first of all, but if he did, I'd keep it quiet if I were him because, you know, he still wants to maintain his academic credibility, but he talks about, you know, behaviors that benefit group behaviors. He talks about, you know, behaviors being inheritable and that sort of thing. And that's all good. But how about the evolution of humanity's actual relationship with the divine, you know, who, who may also be evolving? And, and you know, th that, this is the kind of territory that at Integral we can go in and not worry about it too much. In Integral, we look at a map of the quadrants and we just see that along with everything else. Yes, that there's an interior non-material reality and a dimension of reality that is structured and as real as a rock, but and it's non-material. And there's lots of data that supports that particular consciousness. And it might not be an individual consciousness, but it's certainly something that, is, that, that involves every, everything being connected back and forth. And there are certain phenomena we've discovered that are transtemporal phenomena that, that, you know, they don't follow the talk about Newton that don't follow rel, either relativity or Newton's laws, uh, you know, spooky actions at a distance. Yeah, which reminds me of another thing that I like about his book. He talked about psychotherapy. Um, yeah. And so one thing that he talked about psychotherapy, he went back and, and basically he really didn't know what he was saying this, but, but that, that every new form of psychotherapy had to make the previous ones wrong. 
Okay. The, problem, right. the reason that Jung and Freud didn't get along after Jung did his stuff is because Jung's stuff included and transcended Freud, and Freud did not want to be included and transcended. Okay. And then the reason that the behaviorists dismissed the, the psychoanalysts is because they didn't want to include the unconscious, and so they said it didn't exist. Okay. Right. And then the cognitive people dismiss the behaviorists because they go, well, you know, Jesus, it's really what you think. Um, which, you know, Wilson was beginning to look at interiors. He said thoughts actually generate worldview. He, had a, he actually talked about worldviews. And then the cognitive behaviorists said, well, we need to include both of them. And then that, that's the current standard in traditional, in, in straight psychology, so to speak. Right. Um, and everybody comes from spiritual understandings, uh, or, or at least all the effective therapists, but you don't talk about it in the mainstream and kind of then people start giving you shit about it, apparently. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that in conferences. Yeah. And so this is a whole other thing about being an integral person. My reaction to that was being impatient and dismissive. And I went, okay, Keith, so now slow down. Which is what they're being it, every time they have a new realization. And, you know, that's the drive. The drive is... It is, isn't it? ...us with dismissal. We want to... We have a drive to come back, a reflex to come back with dismissal. But if we're aware of that, can you and I have been talking about that for a long time. If we have a witness observing that, we can go to a more complex form of data yep. processing on it. And the more complex form that you and I have been going to with Wilson is, okay, so what else does this guy have to teach? For instance... When he then he's talked about therapy, he says, when somebody comes in, you're not really treating the person, you're treating, you're treating the social networks. And I agree with that. I've been saying that for decades, that when somebody comes in, I'm not just treating them, I'm treating them and their family and wherever they work and culture that they're in. All of those people are my clients. That if there's an intervention, I'm thinking in terms of all those people, not just my individual client, though there is a hierarchy in terms of welfare. And so I liked that part of it. Though when it came to stage development, you could see him getting confused. I know. Fascinating. And how it would have clarified and explained so much of what he was, you know, fumbling around with. Yeah. And, you know, the more he's talking about moral circles, but yet not without any understanding that moral circles have grown and reliably and predictably through stages, through stages. That you can identify. Yeah. You know, you and, I, you and I now are having the Ken Wilber experience. You know, I can't, you know, I've, I've been listening to Ken talk to people forever. And, you know, I can excuse him because what he'll do is people will talk and they're missing something. And one of, one of Ken's pet peeves is people miss structure stages, which people miss all the time on kind of their hardest to see because you have to look at, you know, structures of consciousness in yourself. And then he'll start zeroing in on, you know, what they're missing. And, you know, that's true, but they're missing. If you add structure stages to Wilson's work, it makes it way larger and more interesting. Oh, yeah. And then we could also feel the actual procreate urge that is living the thing, you know, that's animating the thing that is not seeable till you could actually get a sense of the form of this immaterial evolution. Yes. And... It has a form at every level. And if you're a spiral wizard, and that's what you have to be if you're a good therapist or if you're a good communicator, you access that person's relationship with the divine at every level to help them with horizontal health. But also the, the stealth agenda is the evolution of consciousness because basically that's what we need 
to move forward. And that's what we need to save every, you know, yeah. All yeah. That. yeah. And de facto, he gets us there. Um, he gets us to green, which is terrific. I'm happy to see the mainstream continuing to move into green. And he yeah. talks about, let's all get to Denmark. Yeah, right. You know, right. Fukuyama's thing. Uh, Fukuyama's you know, thing. How we get, let, let's all get to Denmark. Right. And I'm all for that. You know, in terms of practical thinking, you know, we don't need people to you know, st- start worshiping the nature spirits like you and me, Keith. Yeah. But... <laughs> but get me started that they can see I'm the world <laughs> that they can see the moral circle include the whole planet yeah that we do want and that's what i mean this book hallelujah thank hallelujah you david sloan wilson for this book and the other part of that say getting to denmark okay the implicit message of that is denmark is like an end state like a like a climax forest is an end state there well sorry there aren't any end states. There's just more stable processes. Denmark <laughs> is very stable, but you know, the Northern European countries now are being destabilized by immigration, which requires them going to a higher level of complexity if they want to maintain their social democracy consciousness. And that involves having to work with other countries collaboratively to deal with the, the, the crises that are causing global migration. And global migration isn't just migration of people, it's migration of worldviews. And as Ken said, you can degrade the worldview of a, a culture or you can uplevel it if you put enough people in at another worldview. And so we don't have a solution to that particular problem yet, but if you're thinking in terms of structure stages, at least now we have a framework to have a discussion about it. And if we have polarities as a post-critical thinking way of of thinking about it, we can go, all right, now let's look at both sides of how this is is going. Let's manage this process forward in an evolutionary way and be prepared for novelty to arise. Because, you know, we're not going to be able to predict if we manage these processes well, we, don't, we can't really predict exactly what's going to happen, how it's going to look. But we can predict the difference between, process, between progress and regression. Yeah, And that's you know, right. regression is not going to work very well, and progress is going to work better. I mean, that's the expanded, exploded worldview of integral, yeah. where it's not gripped around any particular ideology anymore. We see ideologies as uh, you know, carriers of ideas that we need them all. Mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah, that is next. And they're all beautiful. And, and, you know, the thing is, is, is I am not invested that people see it as quadrants, levels, line states and types. The problem, of course, is that Ken, from the very beginning, he did not start with a theory and expand his theory to try to shape reality into it. He started with contexts. You know, in other words, Ken started out as a librarian. You know, I am the librarian of the cosmos. So how am I going to organize the stacks of the cosmos? How is it? And and even more, what is the natural organization, the stacks of the cosmos? And that's how he came up with integral theory. And then from that, Ken went inward to look at different things like integral psychology and, and integral spirituality and so on. But unlike anybody else, he was going from the outside in rather than the inside out. And then to a large extent avoided the trap of having to discount other theories because all the theories are included and having to shape reality to your theory because, you know, you don't have to shape reality. No. (laughs) Reality is a moving target. And hallelujah for that. You know, as an integral person, when I see someone who's had an integral awakening, and most people that I run into that have integral awakenings don't know integral, which is interesting to me. 
it's not like I want them to learn integral, but I see the blind spots in that system because the system was not designed from the outside in. It was designed from the inside out. And so I go, wait a minute, you're missing structure stages. Oh, wait a minute. Like, for instance, the whole interiors of the drives. I see this in social science all the time, and I see it in psychology all the time. The people neglect the fact that we are, have psychological drives that manifest themselves moment to moment through states of consciousness. And those states of consciousness are more socially engaged or less socially engaged and more defensive. So Wilson talks a lot about getting people to social engagement. You know, of, of course, the, I, I, don't, I don't want this to stop. I'll mention it now. One of his favorite people who became one of my favorite people was Eleanor Ostrom. Hmm. Eleanor Ostrom was his sweetheart. She's a, I keep thinking about Suzanne Cook-Gruder. Self-effacing sweetheart woman who won the Nobel Prize for Economic in 2009. It was so obscure that all the economists around the world were super pissed off. So who, who the fuck is Eleanor Ostrom and how come she's winning the Nobel Prize and I'm not? <laughs> and so but she won the Nobel Prize because she looked at groups that managed a commons. You remember the tragedy, Garrett Hardin, the tragedy of the commons, mm-hmm. where he said that humans will always screw up a commons because they'll be greed and stuff. And she found groups that were managing commons. And she said they had eight core design characteristics. And she identified them and she tested them. And by God, if groups that had those eight core design characteristics, and I'll mention them because I think they're important, they did really well with each other and they did well with the larger cultures. And then Wilson, God bless him, applied it to a high school of underachieving kids and showed that if you create a group with these eight core design principles, that those kids had greater um, success. There's a game called the good behavior game that has those principles. Um, For every dollar that people invested in the good behavior game in elementary school, they saved $64 in public services later on in people's lives with longitudinal work. It was following these eight core design uh, principles. And what are they? The first one is people people buy in. We are a group. We're going to do something. You know, we're in it together. The second so that let me just pause there. You know, that's the self-identity. In a way, that's creating this sort of social monad. Because one of the things about integral theory is integral theory is, it talks mostly about the evolution of the individual in terms of the, the holons mm-hmm. and ends up with individual human beings. And social holons have a different sort of quality. But if you get a, an identity going, then you could work as a group. Yes. I guess it's as simple as that. And we're all part in in post-modernity here. We're all part of multiple groups. That was an insight I got from Wilson's book that I really appreciated. You know, I don't have to, you know, like go to the go to the meetings and sit through the, you know, the the and get the notes and be all bored and you know show up at the social events to be part of a group. I just need to be part of a group. We're all part of multiple groups. And in integral, we generally will choose our groups according to consciousness rather than according to ethnocentric stuff, which is why I'm doing an integral psychotherapy certification program in fucking Sao Paulo instead of Santa Barbara. There was a group of people that had a level of consciousness. And and also, most integralists don't realize this, but we're the the first group of people in the world in, in the last 50 years. We identify more with similar consciousness people than our ethnocentric identity. Mm hmm. I identify more with uh, progressives and post-progressives around the world than I do with, say, conservative Americans. Yeah. Okay? I mean, that, that in itself is an evolutionary achievement that it is reflected is. in our unconscious identification. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. you could say that that started in a certain way with modernity, where yeah. we became trans-ethnic, uh, but it definitely continues. You know, it's an aspect of the way forward, for sure. I, but go on. So that's the first one. You know, we, 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 we buy in. We're, we're a group and we have a purpose, whatever that purpose is. The second thing is, is that we're all, you know, so the purpose involves us doing something. Um, she, what she did is she looked at, at some Turkish fishermen who needed to, to, to not overfish some, tur- some waters and some Maine lobstermen. And we can also see this in things like Alaskan salmon fisheries, which are now sustainable fisheries because people have organized around it. And she found that the people there, first of all, there's buy-in with a purpose. Second of all, it's, it's fair. People feel like everybody kind of gets back what they put in. Everybody puts in a bunch and they get back a bunch. And the leaders can get more, but the leaders are taking on more responsibility. That there's a sense of a fairness of input and output, okay? It's not like, you know, you work for $10 an hour for, or $15 an hour maybe for Walmart, and then the people at the top are making $500,000 a million dollars a year, okay? That makes everybody cynical. So it's not like that. It's like it feels fair. Yeah. The third thing is, is that everybody in the group has input on the rules. You know, their opinion matters. Okay? And it's not like everybody has equal say, but everybody has a say. Okay. And the fourth one is that people are being monitored about whether they're following the rules or not. If, you know, it brings us to the current situation in the government, right? You know, people are being monitored. And the fifth thing is there's a graduated series of consequences if people break the rules. Graduated series of consequences if people break the rules. And then the sixth thing is, if there's a conflict, there's an efficient way of resolving the conflict. The seventh thing is, is that the groups get to be relatively autonomous. They're not being messed with by the outside. And the eighth thing is, they're embedded in larger cultural contexts that are supportive rather than hostile. And wow. Now, yeah. Now yeah, I, I, I want to live in that world. Well, you, you, you do live in that world. Jeff. I do live in that world. Many groups that have those you and I have those eight things in our little group and, yeah. and, you know, it works really well for us. Okay. Yeah. People that join us in the stuff that we do and we're in the little, in the groups that we're parts of, we have those things. And when one of those things isn't there, there's a problem. And so those eight things, so Wilson got all excited about that and he applied it to high school students and he had a good, good effect. You know, we talked about the element. He, he looked at corporations. Apparently, there's a certification group called the B Corp Certification Group that certified 2,000 companies yeah. around who have these, these, these qualities. And so his point is that this is the evolution of small groups. These principles create competitive groups. And then in the absence of being now, <laughs> this is where he, he begins to lose it. Because there's, the small group is just one level. There's also larger groups and larger groups and larger groups. So in America, you might create a group like that, and then you're super successful. So what's going to happen? What's the goal of the founders? The goal of the founders is that some big corporate, so Amazon will come around or, or something, and they'll offer you a half billion dollars or $10 million or whatever millions, enough to, you know, like kind of get, get your eyes dancing. And they'll buy it, and they'll incorporate it into their thing. And sometimes they let it keep it going, but you, at that particular point, there's somebody up there that's now beginning to mess with it and it stops feeling fair to the other people. And, you know, how many times has, has cool enterprises been bought? And then they might still have products, but there's something that, that gets lost. Mm-hmm. 
And one of the things, and originally, another thing that he did that I really loved is they, they mapped the happiness of the United States. So the happiness of the United States peaked in 1830 and 1960, and it bottomed out in 1900 and now. <laughs> and, and, you know, he had the criteria, income inequalities, uh, physical size, age of marriage. They, they looked at things that are for, uh, associated with, with happiness. But that, and that seems to reflect certain macroeconomic principles. But I liked it. I liked it that that as you looked at that, you saw that what happens is there's a correction in the collective yeah. when people get miserable enough. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, and, and it's know, happened before. And he, it's it's uh, you know he they mapped out the cycles, and it's like it it almost maps with the Strauss Strauss Howe theory about exactly. every eighty years. There's a certain generational growth, maturation, and disintegration. And, it, and in the last several hundred years, it hasn't involved armed revolution. Yeah. Okay, which is pretty cool. Totally, yeah. That, that there's, a, there's a continuity where, you know, the political process in the United States is pretty adversarial and fucked up in many ways. We just fight on Twitter. Yeah, fighting on Twitter. But, you know, you know Trump wants to kill the person who leaked that stuff, and he can't. And so what we're seeing is I'm not sure he really wants to kill them. I think I think I think Bill Mars Bill Mars right he's a big pussy and I'm glad actually. But go on. But by the way, I was Who knows? About, I was about <laughs> Bill Mars today. I was thinking I was thinking about Bill Mars. I thought this is the thing about green that gets to me. And I know it gets to Ken. There's something cool happening, you know, like, I don't know, like the, the next election, maybe even, uh, you know, a process of, of trying to turn income redistribution or, or, you know, Medicare for all. And there's a part of me that goes, OK, so how so Bill Maher goes, how are the Democrats going to fuck it up? And I go, how is Green going to fuck this up? <laughs> I worry about that. Yeah. that yeah. No, it's so true. That, yeah. No, it's, I mean, our worldviews are so real to us. Yeah. And we can't imagine how there could be people who would see the world differently. And they're deluded, they're co-opted, they're stupid, they're, be, you know, we got all kinds of explanations, but the reality is they're actually living in a different world than we are. They do live in a different world. And there, there's a, aspects of their world uh, that we've lost that need to be brought back. So, you know, the, it, integral, we get to know that, not always see it, you know, it's a, a practice, but, you know, that's what we're doing here. And it makes me wonder, like, what's in worldviews beyond mine, you know, violet or ultraviolet? You know, if, if, there's, if there's some consciousness or person or, or people, they're stable there, you know, what do they see in the world that I'm in? And, or about me even, mm -hmm. that I'm not seeing. Right. Because I know that exists. Yeah. And I know those are, those are not like, the, the, what a part of the disappointment of, William, of um, Wilson's book, because I was looking, and, and I got the same experience when I, when I read Consilience by Edward Wilson. That it was really exciting. I love this. this, this yeah, me too. Fun studies. Yes. I mean, I'm going to have to tell the chicken study before. Well, we I just, I just, I got to just point out that there's this, what is his name? Yuval Harari and who wrote the book Sapiens. Again, the same thing, you know, same empty, it, empty of interiority. I know. Uh, it's big history. Bill Gates. I love them all, but empty of interiority, empty of juice. I know. And, and it's, and so when you see it, 
and the other people either don't, or I think what they do, if we talked about the phenomenological and the interiors, what they do is they'd say, we acknowledge it, but it's not as important as the empirical and the exteriors because we can't, we can't, yeah, get, fair enough. We can't get reliable data from the interiors like observable data. Exactly. I, I get that we have to have a dimension of inquiry that's not going to be messed with, with anything that is hard and real. Yeah. So science as we define it or material science has its place and we don't want to fuck with it. Yeah. But it's not the only thing. Well, and also everything it, can't be reduced to it. And also if it, what the beauty of the four quadrants that way is when empiricism gives us an indication that are, because when we're dealing with interiors, we have to deal with metaphors mostly because, you know, it, it, it's, it's a sense it's unqualifiable. It's then we don't say it's this, we say it's like this. Okay. So when <laughs> science, when science gave me the data that the unconscious was, was structured from a neurobiological set of drives and, and, and principles that altered my understanding of the unconscious. That's what caused part of what caused me to write my book, Shadow Life. It's very similar to previous or, or understandings of the unconscious, but, but it really, those previous understandings of the unconscious had blind spots because they weren't being cross-validated by the right. If you cross-validate them from the right quadrant, all of a sudden we see something else. And I had this conversation um, recently with a friend of mine, and I thought, this is the value of integral. She said, we can get to a level of consciousness where people do not have to go through greediness and separateness and selfishness. They can just be born into an environment where, you know, it's kind of goodness and light, kind of the Summerhill thing with a spiritual orientation. And I said, that's not going to happen. Because I wish. I wish, but we got to grow. We got to grow through this. You can grow through the stages faster. And I think a lot of the millennials and the other kids today are, but you have to grow through those stages before you get to those stages of transcendence. That's biologically determined. You know, we, no matter how much we wish, wish upon a star, we can't deny biology. And this is what turns scientists off when people do that. And what turns scientists on is when people go, Okay, let me look at your science and come up with an inclusive, you know, an integral list is, is enfoldment and non-exclusion. <laughs> and after a while, you begin to develop that reflex looking at things. But even then, I see something I don't like and I start dismissing it. And I have to go, no, Keith, find mm -hmm. the value. All the patterns are deep. Yeah. They're so yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's actually a quote from uh, E.O. Wilson, the great evolutionary scientist, to talk about evolution being the greatest myth mankind has ever had. Wow. And I think he meant that as, uh, you know, capital M myth. And, it, and science delivers that to us. It's, we, don't, we wouldn't know that by just wandering around the planet. We had to investigate. Look what we know. 13.8 billion years ago, you know, something blew out of nothing and turned into this moment. That's just so magic. And that's a science-based religion, essentially. Yes. It's a, it's, a, it's a religion that includes science. That's yeah. for sure. Because it gives us a spiritual orientation and a directionality. Yes. Yeah. You know, if, I'm, if I'm, my direct directionality is supporting my personal ontological and phylogenic evolution in relationship with everything else, which because that's what makes things better. Um, that leads naturally to some kind of connection with the other world. 
with unity, which is a felt connection. It's not just, you know, it's, it's not just on the page. It's an, it's an interior experience. It's, it's, a, it, I, I mean, again, for years and years, it's, it's the evolutionary uh, movement basically is a science-based religion. And, and, you know, it's funny, these guys that, that were looking at the Precambrian thing and saying that, that, that natural selection doesn't work because the Precambrian thing um, can't be explained simply by natural selection. It was like such 20th century thinking, uh, even though they were really interesting guys, particularly Steve Meyer. I liked him. But I went, Steve. Well, what did he say would account for it then? Well, he said, so, so let me see. Oh, he's, uh, first of all, he need to, you know, sort of denounce Darwinian theory because yeah. it doesn't account for it. Yeah, it doesn't account for it, so therefore Darwinian theory sucks. Now, that's throwing out 500 million years of a fossil record. That's not very wise. But anyway, he did that. And he said, well, so the, the things that, that came in is somebody came to pl- the planet and planted these things. Okay. You know, some alien thing. Or, you know, maybe there's some kind of divine thing going on. Okay, that might be it. I mean, they were they were okay. Well, fair enough. That that's good. Those are possibilities. You know, when we talk about you know, so what's the ultraviolet? What's the two or three stages beyond us thinking? You know, and if we just follow the theory, they're moving from world centric to cosmocentric. So it's involving the whole ball of wax. You know, and maybe even beyond, maybe even a reality within which our universe arises, you know. So uh, I don't know what to say beyond that, but that's, you know, that may include alien planets. That may include supernatural beings. It's like Ken sometimes says, maybe there be dragons there, (laughs) but I hope they're nice dragons. The idea that consciousness has left this planet and travel to another planet, travel to the moon, and we'll probably travel to other solar systems. So science fiction was, it's interesting, there were so many science fiction books written in the 60s, because a lot of these scientists were so frustrated with academia oh. that they, they came up with their own mythologies and their own stories so that their creativity about what's happening could go further. And so many of them were, we went to a planet and dropped a seed. And then that seed turned into consciousness. Yeah. And the idea that the universe is producing consciousness for some reason, um, maybe it's just the creative advance of the knowledge. Exactly. It's like, why do seeds grow in the dirt? They just fucking do. I don't know. I mean, they're just this stuff. And then there's life. So that's kind of what we do if we were trying to seed the universe. We just go and plant the seeds, knowing that the procreate urge, the capital G urge to growth is online everywhere. Why would it just be here? And this is where uh, when he has a little section on psychotherapy, which, of course, I was all stoked about. Um, You're talking about this book. We're talking about the yeah, yeah, history of life. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, you know, when non-psychotherapists talk about psychotherapy, there's always something that goes on. But, but he was pretty good about it. The bottom line around it is he, is he went, okay, so, so there's something about human development that involves needing to feel social connections with other people, needing to feel positive affects rather than negative affects. And that, and that human beings have positive affects mostly when they're in service of the beautiful, good, and true. When they're caring for other people and caring for themselves in a compassionate fashion, and this is the research. You, you know, you see and a lady, creating beauty. 
creating beauty. UCLA just got a $10 million grant or maybe a hundred million. It was, it was a huge grant to study compassion. Okay. Now UCLA has a department now that's studying compassion. You can see the evolutionary march now that that's, that's an edge. And you know, once you start getting there now, maybe structure stages are coming back, you know, into the green yeah. institutions. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, Wilson de facto lays out various things that have come online in history, but not with any kind of coherence. That's a disappointment. Yeah. That was, ah. Yeah. But, you know, there's a couple other things that he identifies that I really appreciated and it helped me to think about it in a new way. And that is the growth, sort of the natural growth of the child. And how play, just unsupervised play, gives the best outcomes in terms of the growth of the human being. Much better than baby Einstein, right? Well, Plato said when children are around three years old, they should go to sanctuaries where there are teachers, where they're allowed to play and are guided um, into the the games that develop out of their, their groups. You know, Plato said that, and, and neural research and developmental research has shown that's really important. And, you know, rough and tumble play with a kid when they're small with a, with a strong dominant uh, parent means that they have more affect regulation and, and better physical development. He also talked about the uh, advantages of being in the outdoors. Oh, yes. nature In terms of just three-dimensional nature. And also in terms of the biome and getting, you know, exposed to germs. And the downside of modernity, where we wanted to cleanse the world of germs and we wanted to, you know, organize everything. And so, you know, he does de facto get into this territory. But I love the part that's just uh, about recognizing, even though he never really says it, that there's something we're all we're all just animated animated by growth yes uh, on our own we don't don't need anybody doing it for us well, you see, know that's what made me kept me bringing me back i mean he's when i say born again evolutionary i mean there's some kind of spiritual excitement animating his message there is and and that is you know when you finally realize that greater complexity in human is loving each other better and that not that's not an option we suffer if we don't do it, and we thrive if we do it. That's a pretty cool realization. That's pretty validating about all the things that we've ever learned about the good. And so when you're a scientist and you find scientific validation for that, you go, oh, boy, I have yeah. the answer. Right. Now, that, that's when you start trying to scrunch reality into your theory instead of going, okay, and now how will my theory be modified as I expand my context? Um, and that's, that's why you and I enjoyed him so much and we're so frustrated with him like we are with so many books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to oh, I just the, actually, oh, go on, Keith. Uh, I want to uh, tell the chicken experiment. Oh, okay, tell the chicken about. experiment. <laughs> okay, so they did this. He was used this to demonstrate how evolution of groups is more important than evolution of the individual. So here's a chicken experiment. So they wanted, to, they wanted to create chickens that laid more eggs, right? So they picked the chickens that laid the most eggs, and they just had them breed, okay? So after four or five, it doesn't take many generations to change psychology and, and morphology. of It only takes about 10 generations. It's ridiculously quick, okay? 
I mean, very, very, very quick. Um, anyway, so what they ended up doing was producing psychopath chickens. Okay, so the ones that, that survived were the ones that were the most aggressive and selfish. And so they had less, the groups had less eggs because they were just too busy attacking each other like maniac sociopaths. Okay. So instead they took groups of chickens and they just took the groups that had the most eggs. And then what they ended up producing was cooperative chickens that laid a lot of eggs. And his point was that the evolution of small groups trumps the evolution of the individual um, when we're dealing with the survival characteristics for the group, what Darwin called kin selection. And, you know, it, Darwin always said this, you know, natural selection is selection of the fittest, sexual selection is selection of the sexiest, and kin selection is selection for the people in our immediate kinship group or the group that we identify as a kinship group. And there are three different, they can't reduce them to each other. There are three different forms of selection that are happening simultaneously, <laughs> multi-level. And then he extended those levels into social constructs, into larger groups. I extended into corporations and governments, mm -hmm. um, into, into consciousness and cosmology. I mean, it just, the yeah. context just keep expanding. Yeah, fabulous. The one thing I wanted to point out, and we can just plug these in, sure. is that the uh, fundamental upside of the green anthropology, social science rejection of you know, the idea of, of evolution in, in terms of culture is that every culture was seen on its own terms. And we try to see cultures, and still do, I mean, this is the, the fruit of this, see cultures through, as much as we can, through their own eyes. And, uh, and that, that was a really important thing. So I, you know, I, I, I hesitate to have any kind of implication that the rejection of cultural evolution was a wrong turn. It wasn't. It was necessary in order for us to bring it back in a way that's not gripped and triumphalist so yeah and i like that uh, and also what that does is it goes back to a point that you make a lot which is if you're looking at a culture from the inside let's look at the positives and the negatives given their contexts okay so the positives and the negatives of a hunter-gatherer group in a forest is that they're functional and, and sustainable um, until they get too successful. The negatives is if you bring a technological group in nearby, they will dissolve like a butterfly in a fire. Yeah. And so you look at the positives and the negatives from the inside. Yeah. So, so again, with Green, when Green says you can't privilege one culture over another, when that gets turned into we can't look at the relativistic strengths and weaknesses of cultures, that's when we start getting mad at green again. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we have uh, given that book a good airing. And yeah. uh, again, I think I, I, I would put it on my thumbs up list. And, you know, it's great to see the cultural evolution itself in terms of re-embracing cultural evolution. So I'm with you. And... <laughs> I enjoyed probably looking at my own reactions as much as I enjoyed Yeah, them. I know. And going, okay, Keith, you know, I know. it always lets me know I have something to work on. That yeah. intellectual arrogance that comes from integral understanding. I, you know, I'm getting to notice it when it happens more regularly yeah. and, and able to make a correction. I encourage anybody who's reading this, and I encourage you to read it, 
you know, pay attention to yourself while you're doing it. See if that happens. Absolutely. Well, that's the self-observation. It's so interesting to watch Jeff. He's a wily one. I got to keep an eye on him. Well, I like to watch you too, by the way. I find it <laughs> and Keith to watch too. Yeah, you got to give him an inch, he takes a mile. <laughs> Only on occasion. Oh, yeah. Well, um, yeah, so I think we're good. And we're good. Um, thanks, everybody, for watching The Daily Evolver. And Keith and I will be back next time for another episode of The Shrink of the Pundit. Bye. Bye-bye. Much love to everybody.